Hello and welcome to Navara FM, broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's best and most glitteringly adventurous of radio stations. I'm your host, James Butler, and this week I'm joined in the studio by friend of the show and brilliant Guardian columnist and expert on housing, inequality and much, much more, Dawn Foster. Welcome back to the show. I'm also joined by the host of one of Navara Media's other regular offerings, uh, and prominent Labour Party subversive, Michael Walker. Pleasure <laughs> um, to be here, James. <laughs> you can find Michael hosting The Fix, um, our regular video show, streaming live on Facebook and elsewhere on a Monday, and you can catch up on the Navaramedia.com website. As regular listeners know, our focus on this show can vary be- between trying to get behind the latest political stories uh, and taking a more kind of reflective, theoretical approach to a particular issue. And this week we're going to try and tease out what's going on in some of the big political stories and trends recently and what their implications are for left politics. And I can't think of a better team to do it with. And I wanted to start with a story that's kind of a backdrop to the domestic stories. I think a a lot of our focus today will be on on domestic politics and domestic policy. Um, But I just wanted to to sort of mention or or to note my kind of disquiet at, at, you know, the growing strength of the far right in Europe. And I've, I've mentioned this before periodically on the show. And, it, you know, th- this mention partly grows out of the, a photo that was circulating um, of the recent, uh, in inverted commas, patriotic uh, extreme right wing demonstration in Warsaw. 60,000 people. And the photo that was circulating was of this huge crowd of people um, uh, with sort of red flares and smoke. Uh, you know, and, and the slogans were really astonishing. So the slogan of the demonstration was, we want God, which I think was a particularly interesting choice. Um, but the, the, the chants included, uh, the whole Poland sings with us, F off with the refugees, uh, God, honor and homeland. And among the banners were, were banners reading clean blood and Europe will be white. Um, and a man from uh, on the stage, uh, as one of the speeches, said, The world is changing. We are fighting a culture war. This war is not somewhere far away. It is in your home, even though you may not realize it. It is a war against God, against the homeland and honor, which they want to take away from us. And the crowds applauded and cheered. Great Catholic Poland, great national Poland. I mean, there's lots of, of, of interesting stuff here. Um, you know, the anti-fascists in Poland say that this is partly an outgrowth of there being uh, a media that has gone really extremely right-wing, uh, filled with kind of right-wing propaganda. Um, so, and the, the, the views expressed in it have noticeably shifted over the course of the past uh, couple of years. Um, and the, there is, uh, you know, that the, the, this is not solely a street movement. It feeds off uh, the kind of institutional power uh, of the Law and Justice Party, um, who are locked in a conflict with with uh, European legislators at the moment, um, but 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 it's worth saying that it's also symptomatic of uh, uh, elected right wing <clears throat> parties elsewhere in Europe. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of Hungary, but but not not solely. Um, so it's very disturbing. And uh, you know, the thing to say about this is 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 first of all that actually. One might expect from from some of the things I've been saying that, you know, that this is a religious movement of some kind. In fact, religiosity in Poland is actually in a decline. Mm. Um, I mean, it has a particular history of uh, uh, and relationship between politics and religion, which is not necessarily replicated elsewhere. But the deployment of tropes like this, of religious tropes like this, are very, very familiar in Hungary, for instance. So Hungary um, talks about uh, the the crown of St. Stephen, the iron crown of St. Stephen, um, tries to mobilize it. uh, Jobbik does this, the, the fascist grouping in, in Hungary, explicitly fascist grouping in, in Hungary. Uh, the Serbian government did it during uh, the, the breakup of, of Yugoslavia. Um, so this is not an unusual thing in, in one sense, but what interests me or what disturbs me is uh, the interaction between the institutional uh, political actors and the street, street actors. So you have this patriotic demonstration, um, you know, which is really actually quite terrifying. I mean, you know, like actually quite startling. Uh, at the same time, you have uh, a political party in power that has really, really undertaken quite severe attacks on the judiciary. And there's a, an ongoing 
case about that. I mean, there's some negotiations going on between the president um, and uh, and the Law and Justice Party, and they're trying to reach some kind of. The president vetoed two of the measures to kind of get rid of the whole Supreme Court <laughs> and to give the the the, the uh, government power to appoint uh, 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 or Parliament kind of complete control over the appointment of, of, of Supreme Court judges. But so, but it's not a, a uniquely Polish thing. It's in Hungary. It's in, I mean, Kurtz in Austria, the election of Kurtz in Austria is also part of this story. Um, you know, Hungary has recently accused, uh, just as in Poland, uh, there's a, a strong uh, anti-EU sentiment, so anti-international sentiment. There's always a kind of international actor. Hungary has decided that it's going to accuse the US of interfering in its domestic media. The US State Department is offering various uh, pieces of funding for, for domestic Hungarian media, um, partly because Hungarian media is mostly owned by uh, businessmen who are in favour of the government. So yeah, far right in Europe. Um, Corbynism here seems to be a bit of an outlier because the insurgent movements in Europe that are really, really strong look like they're far right. Um, do we see similar themes here? Is there anything domestically that seems to chime with, with these things? No, I can speak. <laughs> so, you, you go first. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think a year ago we probably would have said, yes, I mean, not to the same degree. Obviously, mm. the Brexit vote is not like the vote for Jobbik in Hungary mm. or this far-right demonstration in Poland. I think something that is significant about Poland and some of those countries in that region is they're quite ethnically homogenous. I think Poland is the most ethnically homogenous mm. country in the EU. And that means that when populism takes hold because the status quo isn't satisfying a majority of, of people, then white nationalism is an option there in a way that it's not been an option in, in Britain. What you can make acceptable in a country where most people are white and not many people have a neighbour from a different ethnic background mm. is, is different and that's why it can take on a more extreme racist form. In terms of have we seen something like this in Britain? I mean, it's it's the classic left populist line, which is when the status quo isn't working for the majority of people, you, will, you either have right-wing populism or left-wing populism. The Brexit vote probably had a bit of both, but probably more right-wing populism than left-wing populism. Corbyn's obviously left-wing populism. Potentially in the rest of Europe, you could have a, a left-wing populism to challenge mm. this right-wing one. I mean, I think there's a few things. So first of all, I think, you know, agree entirely with Michael that I think one thing is that, you know, we had the BNP collapse and all of their vote share pretty much go to UKIP with a bit more from other parties. And UKIP obviously were very racist, um, but they threw everything into the EU vote. And then when they won it, they basically kind of made themselves non, there wasn't any need for them to exist anymore. But I also think it's more difficult in the UK because we are four separate nations kind of pulled together. So you're always going to have you know, the Irish question in Northern Ireland, you're always going to have Scottish nationalism that's been rising up again. And then we've got a kind of burgeoning Welsh nationalism. So it's actually very, very difficult to make a very, you know, a, a very big um, right-wing movement that covers all of those period, all those areas. Normally it ends up just in England, um, pretty much. Um, I mean, but also to kind of unpack the Polish situation, I think it's really important to recognise that Poland have a really, really complex relationship with, you know, the, with the church at the moment. Um, obviously, clearly, clearly with John Paul II, they had a Polish pope. He was relatively conservative and they were, you know, um, I, I haven't been to Poland uh, for a couple of years, but when I did, you know, people still carried you know, photos of oh, him yeah, around, yeah, etc. Yeah. And obviously now we've got, Francis, who is a lot more socially liberal and is causing a slight schism in mm -hmm. certain parts of the church. And um, for everything I've seen, actually, you know, part of the reason why people are becoming less religious is because they're younger, they're more liberal, but also some of the more conservative people are turning away from that. And then you see the kind of traditional fascism um, tropes where, you know, people put forward conservative uh, and civic values under the guise of doing so for the church rather than instead trying to get Christian values to inform their politics. So it switches around in that way as per usual. Mm. Um, but also, you know, pretty straightforwardly, people will, will, will talk about Christian values as a way of trying to talk about white Christian values yeah. in a very kind of, you know, traditional European fascist way. And from what I've seen, you know, 
Poland don't have that many refugees, but as Michael said, it has been very ethnically homogenous. So it's very easy for a right-wing press to whip up this idea of invasion and, you know, a culture war. Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly um, a reminder um, of of exactly how these movements can can invoke these sort of ethno-state uh, uh, things. I mean, I was thinking about it in a sort of transcontinental way, actually, and thinking, you know, how this differs from from the US, which is a big fight on the far right in the US between the kind of Steve Banners of the world, who at mm. least you know, formally says, like, I don't, I'm not a white nationalist. I, I you know, I'm an economic nationalist. I'm, I'm an American nationalist. Uh, and those kind of the Richard Spencers of the world, the kind of like explicitly uh, white nationalist, uh, homeland for white people thing. Um, and that led me to thinking about, you know, because, okay, so sure, it's not the only story going on on the continent. There are other trends um, as well. We've seen, you know, we've talked a lot on this show before about Podemos and about, um, you know, other kind of left uh, initiatives, but Macron's collapse. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, but but you know, I mean, I was I was thinking about the the you know how we think about these far right movements, these right wing movements, and like what animates them. Because I think you've both identified things that that are definitely shared with kind of popular discontent in Britain, and yeah, absolutely. Um, there is a continuity between these movements and kind of historical fascism within Europe, and I think that's important to say um but that that similarity can also make us a bit insensitive to the other things that are going on there um now obviously um the hatred of migration and migrants especially is the key feature mm. of most of these movements and this is especially true for the kind of visegrad group and all of those sort of like the you know the big controversies over the balkan route um of, of migrant escape but um you know the temptations to treat everything else as kind of an expression of that, and it seems to me that there are some other other things going on, including about sovereignty. So sovereignty against the ECB, against the EU, possibly against the US in the case of Hungary, but um, mm. but mostly it seems to be animated, just like the against Russia a bit in the case of Poland. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, in Italy, for instance, Five Star Movement grows out partly from the ECB flexing its muscles and booting out Berlusconi, which mm. um, is certainly a, has a mixed, you know, mixed consequences. Uh, the desire for a working capitalism as well, which is a, a different thing to historical fascism, mm. right? Which was a, you know, it, it was a revolutionary movement of, of a kind. Um, you know, it, it, you know, it, 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 it wants either a nationally bounded capitalism uh, against sort of parasites, international parasites, European parasites, and so on. A shadow of anti-Semitism there, obviously. Or simply, like, these movements are animated by a defence of capitalism to core. Like, it's... We're, how much we're for is, capitalism. How much does the electoral system play into it as well? Mm. I mean, of, I feel like a lot of what happened in um, June with the election was down to the... down to people really, you know, going into the first-past-the-post system, realising that actually a protest vote wasn't going to get them anywhere. Mm. And we really did feel as if it was Labour or the Tories. Absolutely. For the first time in maybe about 20 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, think that's, I think that's key here domestically. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, it seems that the other thing, I guess, that, that feeds into it, and it kind of doesn't seem to express itself in, in the British political system, or maybe I'm, I'm not thinking of something, maybe I'm missing something, is like the use of moral panics or like conspiracy yeah. theory. So um, in, in, in Hungary, like uh, they talk about the kind of George Soros funded, mm. so certainly mm. not limited to Hungary, but in Hungary they talk about how Soros mobilised his sort of international network of protesters against, you know, against the closure of the Central European University, which is a big kind of symbolic thing. Um, but then there's also kind of international cosmopolitans, and it's all part of, you know, it's very, it's in the brew of that kind of Anders Breivik style mm. uh, thinking. Is there is there an equivalent of that stuff in the UK, of the kind of uh, sort of conspiracy-minded stuff? I mean, uh, I think if I, you go into the depths of the far right British internet, it will definitely. <laughs> yeah, exist I mean, there. I get a lot of emails about um, white girls being turned into kebab meat. Right. And okay. I get very strange emails about that. I guess the other thing is more recently we've had kind of moral panics kind of soaked up by newspapers, mm. which, so I think maybe it's less of a kind of undercurrent here and more kind of out in the open in the press. So we've had the universities removing white authors nonsense. Mm -hmm. We've had the Muslim foster care row, which was horrific. Mm. Um, and now the kind of trans panic we're seeing yeah. as well. So it seems like they're more led by newspapers. And then I guess it's one of those things where there's a small grain of truth, you take it out of all proportion and then the story just grows from there. 
there's two questions as well, isn't there? Is one is how does sort of like far right discourse or far right conspiracy theories emerge, and from what discontents mm. do they arise, mm. and what forms of communication uh, engender them and strengthen them when they're out of power, mm. and then how an institutional feedback happens when someone from the far right gets into government. So in the case of the US, now you obviously have Donald mm. Trump legitimating. And I don't really mean legitimating as in now they talk about it in the NYT. I mean, making what many people would have seen as maybe that's a conspiracy theory. Now they hear the president saying it and that makes them think, OK, yeah, this is now legitimate and potentially true. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, completely. Political argument. Um, but the US also has quite a lot of strong liberal institutions with a long history who are able to give some sort of counter narrative at the same time. So you've got a lot of places to pick your information. I think mm. Hungary and Poland quite new democracies, those liberal institutions have less of a history, probably weaker. We know that in Hungary, it was quite easy for Orban to control a lot more of the media than Trump will ever be able to do in, mm-hmm. in America, probably. So the way they got rid of, I, I don't know the name of it, but what was the most successful broadsheet in Hungary is a mate of Orban's bought it and then shut it down because yeah. mm. he said it was not profitable, which it yeah. wasn't. But I mean, no yeah. broadsheets are profitable. <laughs> uh, yeah, don't we all know? Um, yeah, so I mean, these things, and I think this is this is true, and it's it, it's sort of a nice um, way to move into kind of domestic politics. Um, I mean, I think just to, to say on, on this, um, I was thinking of a quote of, uh, that came from Jean Claude Juncker. Many years ago now, so sort of during the. Um, for a long time. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, I'm an avid follower of the Junker. Um, like he's fascinating. He's kind of like the the uh, expressing id of the capitalist class, the international capitalist class. He's like just says things. Uh, so you, I mean, arguably because he's uh, somewhat well lubricated. Um, but um, he uh, so he says this in about 2010, 2011. He says, um, "Oh, we know what we need to do, i.e., austerity of some kind." Um, we just can't get elected again after doing it. I think this is sort of astonishing, really. And it's true. I mean, it's mm. true. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, I think one of the big stories here is about, um, the kind of, and certainly within Europe, is the power and control and centralization, uh, of the ECB, of the EU, uh, and the sense of illegitimacy, right? The sense of democratic deficit that, mm. uh, only comes to, to, to people's notice after, the kind of uh, justification of neoliberal policymaking sort of evaporates. So the justification is you will con- you will feel prosperity, and therefore you've got to allow us this kind of technocratic control. Once that mm-hmm. goes, people go, "Oh, hold on, we don't have any control over the way in which our our our, our finances are organised," and this this generates a kind of sense of democratic deficit. Um, that is one of the things that has animated people about the EU in the UK. It's obviously not. Uh, a eurozone country, so it's a bit different here, but but it nonetheless is a, a sense that people have had, um, and some of those animating things, you know, feelings about sovereignty, feelings about um, you know wanting a kind of different economic settlement, were definitely um, part of the motivation of the Brexit vote. And come on to talk about mm. one of the things I think, and that Dawn has touched on um, just at the top of the show, is is the regional distribution of of uh resentment actually of of a feeling that the country works at different speeds and for different parts of the country in very different ways um here we have a weak government and in a historical sense i think staggeringly weak um not only reliant on the dup but riven by its own conflicts and the twin engines that drive both that conflict in british politics at the moment are, are brexit um and the aftermath and the continuation of austerity. So, is this the weakest government in living memory? Yes. <laughs> um, no, it is. It's actually incredible. I mean, I've got older friends who talk to me as if I'm 50 or 60, and they're like, well, if you remember back in 1990, and I was like, I don't remember that, I was two and a half. <laughs> but, I mean, I remember, I remember, you know, the... the is it the noughties? Is that what we call it now? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. So I remember occasionally Blair having to sack a cabinet minister and, you know, it was quite a short, short, short shock. Um, it wasn't like the pretty Patel, like you're going to fly through the air for 12 hours and then you'll resign. It was very much like you are sacked, get out. Um, 
And seeing this happen is just incredible, but also just watching them row back on absolutely everything. And it's been quite, quite enjoyable watching Jeremy Corbyn seem gleefully say another U-turn, another U-turn, another U-turn. And I was cheating on this podcast with another this week. <gasps> so I was on the Guardian Politics Weekly podcast, um, talking about austerity and they had Nick Bowles MP on and he was talking about austerity and two things struck me. One was that Every time me and everyone I know talk about austerity, we talk about it as a uh, political decision, but not the only political decision. And, you know, I'm very anti-austerity. I think that investing is a much better you know, way forward. I think austerity is a false economy. We've shown that through every kind of aspect of the cuts, the benefits and um, the long term impact on health. But he clearly didn't. He was genuinely convinced that that was that was the only way forward and then he spoke about the fact that um he thought that the conservatives had for too long pursued austerity um and said that when they brought it in there was very much an idea that people would in the short term feel the pinch and then you had to give them something back and there was absolutely no kind of recognition when he was saying this that certain people have felt the pinch far more than anybody else I mean, I don't think you can really say upper middle class people, um, people who earn above the average salary have really kind of been impacted very much by austerity at all. And if you speak to single mothers, if you speak to disabled people, if you speak to people who are unable to work or work part time, the impact on them has been horrendous. I mean, you know, the impact on schools and the NHS. When I speak to my doctor friends, they're practically kind of you know, dead on their feet. They're worried about patient safety because they're exhausted. All of my friends who are teachers want to quit, mm. um, help out at a local food bank and the people there are desperate and they can only come there four times a year when at the moment they can't feed themselves. So there was no recognition that austerity has fallen very, very, you know, deeply on the hardest hit people. And when he was talking about what we had, to, what you had to give people, um, as a reward for enduring austerity, it was, things that help to buy, uh, you know, more affordable homes. And none of these things are going to impact, are going to yeah. you know, be within the reach of yeah. people who've been really hard hit by austerity. So I was really struck by the fact that he honestly thought there were no other economic choices, which is ludicrous, mm. but also that their plans were yet again to focus on the people who needed it least. So they'll continue to lose yeah. votes. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think, because if you're a Tory party strategist, you're not going to be that worried about whether your policies hit the hardest hit. You're going to be worried about whether your policies hit the people in the middle who are supposed to be your swing voters. But I guess the problem is that now the hardest hit are everybody under 45, which is who they lost. Yeah, but that that was as much because of an economy which was based on speculation and private mm. house home ownership mm. as much as austerity. So it's the fact that house prices have become I don't know you you know your your housing facts are better than mine Dawn. when James said you were going to be on here as well like great Dawn can do the facts <laughs> what's but the Eddie, average house price in England Michael uh, in London it's almost half a million quid so it's gone up by a much greater amount than salaries have by loads more than salaries have and that means that whereas what the Tories electoral strategy has been since Thatcher is to have enough people bought into the a free market system where you have a, a privately owned home which is going up in value that regardless on how much you screw over people at the very bottom there's some people who feel invested enough in the continuation of the status quo and see the Tories as the the party best suited to preserve that mm. uh, obviously New Labour for a very long period managed to make out that they were the best positioned to maintain that house prices obviously rose a lot under them so whether it be Tory or Labour, we've had a political system whose legitimacy for a long time relies on that class of people, homeowners, upwardly mobile people, expanding and their assets growing in value. And that's electoral strategy, which was cross-party, has reached its absolute limit. Mm. And there's no longer more people entering that class of people. There's no way for them to get into that class of people. And at this point, the Tories either have to upset their their homeowner support base by making house prices fall or their developer funders because that's another key one you can't get more people on the housing ladder without tackling the monopolies that developers currently have over land and so it looks very difficult whoever was in power of the Tories let alone it being someone who's a terrible performer with a bunch of egomaniacs who don't seem to have any sort of sense of the collective well-being of the Conservative Party motivating their actions it, 
it's difficult to see what the Tories' new strategy of governance is going to be. Mm. Can I give a quick housing fact? Mm-hmm. If you had invested £25,000 in Persimmon, the second biggest house builder in the UK, when Help to Buy was announced, you would now have £90,000, which would be the deposit for a half a million pound London home. Why didn't we all do that? <laughs> have you invested how much? £25,000. Uh, yeah, you know, would now have £90,000. Well, we know how we didn't do that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but I think, I think it's really interesting this the, the kind of dilemma that the, the, the horns of dilemma that the Tories find themselves in because it's interesting I was listening to Nick Bowles on the, I think the Today programme the dreadful awful he's got a book to sell I don't know um, some of the- the audience might be wondering this as well. Who's Nick Bowles? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I looked him up after he was on. I didn't know who he was before. He's a Tory, Tory MP. He's a Tory MP, okay. a Tory MP who's got a book to sell at the moment. He, he okay. does. Um, and, but he was uh, he was uh, he he was locked in, in in the kind of political dilemma of it, which is how you justify changing gear on austerity without mm. saying what you've done previously yeah, was yeah. wrong. Yeah. And that actually, I think, is true. I mean, that is very, very difficult. And it was not convincing. And there are ways to do it. But well, also, like, one way you do it is that no one actually bothers, to, no one in the mainstream media bothers to press that point. Mm. So Sajid Javid went on Andrew Marr the other day and said, oh, no, yeah, we can invest this these many billions on housing because there's a difference between capital spending and current spending in terms of <laughs> yeah, the government debt. And that's what Labour have been arguing for seven years mm, and the Tories exactly. completely denied. But Andrew Marr didn't jump on that. He just got to let, oh yeah, that's a simple economics point that you've been denying for seven years. <laughs> no. um, I'm interested in, in actually in that question in the media and what is and isn't sayable about austerity because we've had in the course, in, in the course, course the past few days, I think, or about uh, just a little while ago, the release of the, this... Um, a report in the BMJ that attributes the, the deaths of 120,000 people to austerity. And, you know, I, that's, that's, I mean, because it's, it's a staggering number. And it reminded me of the trouble that Clive Lewis got himself into after uh, the Grenfell Tower mm. uh, fire when he, he tweeted something saying, burn neoliberalism, not people. Mm. And, Lots of journalists were up in arms about it. Um, and I have here a tweet from the New Statesman's deputy editor and video games correspondent, Helen Lewis, um, which says, it will come as a horrible shock to someone here, Twitter, uh, that people will still die as a result of government policies if, when Corbyn is PM. This <laughs> is from uh, a, a couple of months ago. And so the, the, this, this idea, this kind of like really weird, um, you know, journalistic uh kind of you know the pseudo hard-headed pseudo realist kind of this is just the way things are and actually you know uh people die as a result of government policy and didn't you know that you silly uh utopian dreamers i mean what isn't isn't sayable about this stuff uh in public i think i think it's an ongoing issue and i think that one of the big problems is that we have this kind of um a lot of journalists have this kind of cultish sort of uh, veneration of politeness um, when it comes to political engagement, which is incredible when you watch Prime Minister's questions, as I did on Wednesday. And all I could think was every single person in there baying and screaming and howling should just be taken outside and sacked. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the one hand, we have a political system where everybody screams at each other and acts like you know, I mean, I, I went to a, a very, very bad comprehensive school and we didn't act like that. And uh, we still got put in special measures. So <laughs> I'd love to see what Welsh said, sort of, you know, the House of Commons. But I mean, it's just this kind, of, this kind of veneration of politeness. And I don't think anything, I don't think what Clive said was either unreasonable or non-polite. It was very, very clear, very quickly from the Grenfell Tower disaster that one of the issues had been cost cutting. It had been outsourcing. It had been a huge kind of chain, you know, supply chain that had no, um, no real oversight built, uh, built into it. Um, and that is a big part of neoliberalism. And Clive's point was that we need to keep people safe rather than, you know, kind of think about the market above all else. But. Also, I think there's this kind of refusal to engage with kind of hard facts. And when it comes to the austerity deaths, over and over again, I've had people say, well, you know, people die all the time. And it's like they do. But if you listen to actual qualified medics, and I've spoken to a lot of the people who've done this research, they've been doing it for three or four years now. I've been talking to them throughout it. These are scientists. They use um, very, very strict methodology. Um, they've also looked at the fact that um, in many areas, uh, life expectancy is 
dropping, mm. especially for younger people. The rate of suicides and um, you know deaths from uh, drink, drugs, ill health, etc., have risen massively in the north amongst young people. We've seen a huge rise in premature deaths. And these are scientists who are dealing with these issues. Scientists who have gone through everything, double checked everything. It's been peer reviewed, and they've come out and said, "Yes, of yes, Helen, people die every year. People will continue to die under Corbyn. But if Corbyn changes policies and moves austerity away, we will not get as many excess deaths. And that is a scientific fact. Mm. It's been brought out by the BNJ. It's not that difficult to understand. If you know, even if you don't want to read the full paper, you can read the abstract, and you'd hope that journalists would have at least the ability to engage." with basic scientific facts but often people don't like it because you know i mean i find that the journalists who pretend to be objective are the worst with this mm. um you know uh, quite often the conservatives will come out and say inequality has dropped and you you look at it and you realize that actually they're taking one measure of inequality that ignores the fact that the gap between the one percent and the rest of us has risen so you can cherry pick data however you like but when it comes to something like this you have to accept that these excess deaths have been caused by austerity if jeremy corbyn came in no there wouldn't be infinite money but policies would change and the policies would you know extraordinarily likely having spoken to the to the people who wrote the bmg bmj paper lead to fewer excess deaths because austerity has led to that and if you remove those if you make sure people have enough money to feed themselves keep themselves warm it's not rocket science it's medical science that this will actually you know cause fewer deaths i don't think i i agree with all of that but i, I don't think we can also just say this is just about complacent centrist journalists so if you saw Aditya Chakraborty on Question Time when he was saying that Tory policy kills disabled people, you got a real, quite a hostile reaction actually from the studio audience. So there is a tendency when people say, oh, austerity kills this many people for people to s switch off and say, oh, either that's impolite or that they're clearly now just it going into the realm here. of ideology. Obviously, mm. there's there's a big section of society who when you say that think yeah i understand that because i've seen it <laughs> mm. but if you're not part of that section of society either people who work in those services or people who use those services then i think one reason people have a hostile reaction to saying that policy kills is because they think you're calling 40 percent of the population or however many people voted for the tories sort of indirect murderers mm. and so, I mean, all, I suppose all I'm saying is we should think about what is the most yeah. useful way to put that point. I understand the strategic point, but I mean, I think it's also worth, you know. Yeah, uh, I mean, how much of it as well is people just refusing to acknowledge that it does happen here? Yeah. I mean, whenever I talk about um, food banks, all the comments underneath my article will say, no, that's impossible. They must be spending all their money on fags and flat screen TVs, even though you can't buy an on flat screen TV <laughs> and they don't cost that much. I mean, the, the, the sense here of um, portions of the country that don't understand each other, which just have mm. no idea about you know, how the other half lives, um, is, uh, you know, is a consistent feature of British politics. Um, we, we mentioned the, the, the average wage earlier. There's a point in Ed Balls's memoir, because... I read things like this. Well, you read Ed Balls' memoir. No, I'm Ed well, Balls. a terrible, terrible person in many ways. This is just one. What's of it called? Oh, I can't remember. It was Bouncing awful. Back. <laughs> hey! um, but he he, <laughs> he points out that um, you know he had to point out to I think it was Blair that that the, that the actual average wage was not about sixty thousand. <laughs> 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 this is the late Blair in his sort of messianic phase. But like I mean, this is a, a you know. But so this sounds. I mean, it, and it, you know, it, it really does run through um, quite a lot of, of politics, and, and I don't know. I, it seems odd to me, and you know, you have, you know, the, you know, there are um, strong uh, psychological reasons not to want to believe that your country is. You know, is riven mm. with Killing problems the like this. <laughs> yeah, that it is riven with problems like this. Um, you know, but I think I don't know. For, for me. Um, 
I say, you know, for, for me, the, the, this whole thing is a weird articulation of what is historically like a kind of ultra left communist claim, which is that like the structure of politics itself is the administration of death, you know, just to a greater or lesser mm. extent. And therefore, and then it gets turned around and articulated as just a kind of hard headed realism. Um, you know, it, it rather than, you know, and, 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 and permanently true rather than at least, you know, left communists say like it's a, a historically contingent yeah. fact. <laughs> um, but so I think, I think, I think, you have to be careful about the way in which you do this rhetorically, but some of these people are culpable and are directly responsible. And that's a moral as well as a political claim. Mm. And actually that's good. Um, and because in the conflict between moral claim and sort of technocratic snootiness, moral claim will win mm. uh, and it, it should win. Mm. Um, you know, so, and, and those questions like questions of culpability are part of politics, um, as are questions of choice, the choice of, uh, you know, about whose interests matter to you and who you make choices in favor of. Um, and I think all of that is at play here. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, there was an astonishing, uh, astonishing story in, in, in the FT, I think yesterday or the day before, a long piece on Blackpool about life in Blackpool. Uh, Sarah O'Connor, really have. superb, really superb. Um, and it's just, you know, uh, and we know this stuff, mm. um, you know, uh, and, and it strikes me that there, that, that, that we know this stuff to such an extent that it's going to bear on, it surely must bear on toy policy in some way. There must be a strong incentive to really soften some of this stuff in the upcoming budget. But I can't see a way that it's politically possible. I mean, one of the things is the Tories have been trying to make gains in the North for ages, and that's where the Northern Powerhouse comes from. It's been kind of ignored a little bit now. They've kicked George Osborne out, and he's got 8,000 jobs around the the globe. But, um, I mean... I wrote a, wrote a kind of comment piece about this a couple of months ago. Mm. And one of the things I kept hearing from GPs and social workers in the North was what Sarah Connor mentioned, um, which is something that's abbreviated as SLS. Mm. Um, so it means bad another life word, syndrome. bad life syndrome, <laughs> but with a word beginning with S at the yeah, beginning. Yeah. Yes, we are broadcasting at 1.30. <laughs> um, and the doctors described it over and over again as basically a culmination of factors such as kind of poor health, um, culminating from kind of child poverty and then depression and a lack of work and lack of exercise, uh, drinking and smoking as a result of it. And just basically it meant that when you actually look at, um, the number of premature deaths, you saw that in the north there has been this huge 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 spike in particularly men um dying in their 20s and 30s which hadn't been there before and when you actually look at what's happened to the uk after um 2008 especially when austerity comes in um you know the tories talk over and over again about how employment is that high but when you look at regional employment it's it's really really poor um almost obviously one of the things the Tories have done which doesn't get talked about a lot is get rid of a lot of civil service jobs mass redundancies and they were particularly concentrated in Wales the North and Northern Ireland mm-hmm. and almost every job that you know we were told that the private sector would come in and create those jobs to an extent they have but all of those jobs have been created south of Watford Gap so we basically further Londonize the economy and that doesn't just mean that there aren't jobs everywhere. It means that actually we're slowly killing people. We're slowly, you know, impacting on their quality of life. And one thing which I think Nick Bowles didn't get was that austerity isn't just a kind of three or four year saving up, not going out for, you know, it's, it isn't like saving for a deposit on a house. You don't, it's, it's not. Where all you need to do is stop buying sandwiches. Yeah. All you need to do is stop buying sandwiches <laughs> and avocados. And then after five years, it's fine. You get on with it. It impacts on your life for the rest that is of why your I made life. I packed lunch this morning. <laughs> to buy a house. <laughs> it does impact on your life you know for for the foreseeable so Mm, we currently have you know if you were born in 2010 then you've 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 experienced seven years of inequality of of austerity so you've been to food banks with your mum you live in a you know terrible house and all of these things have long-term impacts on people's lives seven years is a long time in a person's life I think the Tories are quite evil Machiavellian people yes (laughs) and for that reason I'm not sure that they will have people with bad life syndrome as as was in that article on the top of their list of worries and on the top of the things that are going to be going through philip hammond's mind when he draws up this budget i think what you saw what was interesting after the election is the first big thing the tories made a stand about was a, a pitiful attempt at sort of like winning back over students by freezing tuition fees which isn't going to win back anyone <laughs> but you could see precisely why they went for that because yeah. they thought there is a young demographic who are motivated to turn out in a way for 
well, one, they're supporting Labour more than they used to, and they're motivated to turn out more than they used to. So we need to do something about this. Um, I think what we're seeing with housing now is they're going for people who are between 25 and 40 who've also swung dramatically to Labour. And so these are the problems they're really going to be looking to solve. I don't think the Tories are thinking, oh, maybe austerity went a bit too far and we've caused a little bit too much misery because they don't care. (laughs) (laughs) So I think what's going to be really... Although, I mean, I do think that has had some electoral consequences, especially in in terms of motivating people to, I think, a lot of of the Corbyn surge in terms of people joining the Labour Party and going out and campaigning was because of the amount of people who'd seen so much misery Mm. in in the world, people who'd used services which had been cut, or especially a lot of people that work in those services are Mm. some of the most passionate Corbynistas and... Um, but I think there is a sense on, on the Tory backbenchers that, though, that this does need to change. And I'm thinking that um, Hammond's met with a group of young Tory backbenchers, and obviously young in the Tory party is a relative term. Um, but <laughs> 58. He, he, <laughs> ben Bradley and Alan Mackey <laughs> people. Um, but they demanded that he do two things in mm. this budget, end the public sector pay cap and fund house building. Yeah. Um, and I think he might try but I don't again this is where we come back to the question of a weak government I just don't think there's necessarily the room for manoeuvre on that Um, particularly with Brexit coming down the pipeline Um, I'm just I'm just not sure Um, partly because there are rumbles I mean, there are always rumbles and people always worry about it. There are rumbles about a possible oncoming financial crisis. No, you can't say that because everybody goes ballistic. <laughs> you know, Corbyn and McDonald planning for a run on the pound as if yeah. they caused it themselves instead of just contingency planning. Yes, 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 yes. I have I'm forgotten sure that, that I'm particular... Sure, I'm sure the Tories have done contingency um, planning and worked spasm of, of That will be a Facebook ad. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, is that possible? Are there, does it look likely? Is it possible? Well, I mean, that's... That's what I'm saying. I think that will be on the top of their agenda mm-hmm. more than um, solving crises in the NHS and stuff. Because I think, well, I mean, the NHS is different because it affects everyone as well. I, I don't think they give a damn about the poorest people in society mm. who they don't think are ever going to vote for them anyway. I think what they're terrified about is the fact that the ladder to becoming an upwardly mobile property owning um, or quite high up in the because people who are quite high up in the public service, probably a bunch of them did vote Tory. And what you'll see now is doctors are all hate the Tories (laughs) you know it wasn't always a socialist Mm -hmm. constituency Mm -hmm. so you can see why they have this desire to raise the public quite difficult in establishing the NHS actually yeah yeah they were quite difficult then they're they're, uh, the best defenders of it now so all all power to the doctors especially Um, the junior ones yeah so I mean the other the other the flip side of this is the UK productivity problem (sighs) which is um you know one of the reasons that that um the Tory party would be very wary of making any kind of move on Whenever on, on this stuff because they don't have a solution to it. They they worry. Well, about they it. do. They do. Whenever I spoke to the Tory MPs recently about productivity problem, it's hilarious because because they all say all we need to do is invest in private uh, is invest in private industry, and I just end up laughing at them and mm. they say why and I'm like, you don't understand what the productivity problem is. You don't understand that throwing money at big companies isn't going to do anything about that. It's more about you know, if you want to do anything, one thing you could do is shorten the working week. Mm. Um, there are lots of things you could do. You could look at the fact that we're paid nothing. Yeah. Um, if you're paid very, very little and you're exhausted and you're on a zero hours contract, your productivity isn't going to be great because you're stressed, because you're exhausted, because you can't feed yourself and your family. I mean, one of the things that is distinctive about Britain in particular is that certainly since the financial crisis, productivity has slowed down across mm. the board. But Britain is the, it has noticed the sharpest fall in, among the G7 countries. It's really right up there, um, uh, you know, in the OECD as well. Um, I, I sort of, I, I kind of, you know, I don't want to spend too long on it, but but it is. I don't think this is something that is on the minds of the Tory Party. Is something that can be fixed, um, and I think mm. it's therefore kind of one of maybe the ways in to talking about uh, economic setup that that is uh, open to the left. And we saw, you know, Owen Jones recently wrote a piece on the you know four day week, um, which I think is one of the you know one of mm. the, those big kind of Overton window sort of attempts. Um, but uh, on housing in particular, it's obviously a central issue in British politics, as is not ne- not necessarily the case elsewhere. Um, you know, the economy turns around it around its financialization. Mm. Um, you know, obviously Thatcher thought, uh, you know, she, partly that she she would lock in her advantage by the big 
sell off of council housing. And also, you know, she talked a lot about kind of property owning democracy. She uh, had to be talked into it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, really? Who talked her into it? What's his face? Some old guy. Um, but it's a one-time thing, mm. right? It can't be replicated. Yeah. So, and this is what Labour councils need to understand about mm. selling off land as well. If you yes. sell off, if you sell off a publicly owned asset, to Haringey. you can't, you can't, you can't do anything actually, else with it. We've actually had some very good news about Haringey. Indeed. So it's the one of the examples of the first time where organising within the Labour Party looks like it may well prevent. Mm. Um, social cleansing by a Labour council. So there have been selection meetings in the last week and I think they deselected about five pro-HDV councillors and selected three anti. So there's a real potential that by May 2018, which mm. is when these new councillors will stand, the, the makeup of the Labour cabinet will look very different mm -hmm. and the HDV might be on its way out so that's a a good example of how the corbyn surge might actually solve some of these problems <laughs> but, in within labor councils but left-wing george osborne you know the, the left-wing hero we have now <laughs> said that it was very bad in the evening standard said um, what that hdb was no bad? said that stopping it was very bad ah. yes as did uh, uh, former radical councillor peter bingle who is now a, a creature of lendlease mm. and a property mm. lobbyist um so in the absence of a big kind of economic gimme like uh, right to buy, uh, is there an easy strategy on the part of the Conservative Party? And if there isn't, because I don't think there is, is it likely that we'll see an attempt to kind of revive the culture war, uh, to, to channel uh, the sense of a kind of growing cultural rift into a kind of economic or a kind of uh, into a political constituency? Um, because in the absence of, of a kind of you know, economic lock-in for a voter, um, then you've got to look elsewhere. And it seems to me that kind of cultural conflict is the only one that's immediately available. I think the Tories tried that and it didn't work very well, actually. Mm. So, I mean, I think that, that there, after the Brexit vote, they were clearly tried to challenge what was in part cultural anger, which was in a big part also economic anger. And they tried to really lead that new... Um, movement in Britain or that, those new concerns, they tried to speak to them and it flopped for them. It didn't go very well <laughs> at all. I mean, one thing that happened in the general election, and I think that's partly due because lots of people who voted Brexit will never vote Conservative. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons Labour did surprisingly well in the general election was because though at the Brexit vote, 17 million Brexiters turned out and 16 million Remainers turned out, hence Brexit won. At the general election, 14 million Remainers turned out and 13 million Brexiters turned mm. out. So the attempt by the Tories to use cultural politics to their own advantage failed. And that's why I don't really think they do have that as an option. Mm -hmm. I think the Tories are kind of becoming the victim of, of their own kind of 30 years of ideology as well. So from Thatcherism on, it was all about the individual. It was all about being out for yourself, etc. And what Labour did so well at the election was to talk about, you know, uh, a better future for you and your family, but also for your community. So when people turned out to vote for Labour, they felt that they actually felt they were voting for a better country. Mm. They felt they were they, they were voting for you know their neighbours to have a better economic and social settlement. And I think the Tories are panicking now because a they've always relied on the idea that you know a Tory government will be better for you and your family, and. They actually can't offer anything mm. to anybody under 45 without upsetting the older people. Yeah, yeah. And they've also got the problem that, you know, slowly but surely, if you look at Tory party membership, it's, um, I think Tory party membership is now smaller than momentum membership. Mm -hmm. And I think when I looked at it, the average age of Tory party member was 72. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really gone up in the past. So they're either going to so. have to completely reconfigure their politics, which isn't going to happen <laughs> when you look at the fact that actually the cabinet's kind of skewing away from Cameronism back to the old and mm. and actually Theresa May doesn't have a proper ideology and that's the part she's of the all, problem she's, the she's tried to be yeah. a pragmatist and just failed abysmally and it's just not going very well for her so I don't know what she's going to do um we talked about Brexit there briefly and I think we should come on to talk about it a bit more um because I think that's um, you know, one of the things that makes it difficult for mm. the Tory party to change um, is is exactly is, you know, it, it is locked in on, on this stuff. And actually, um, any change at the top is going to ignite or like 
uh, further ignite the very yeah. obvious civil war in the party. But so there's a claim that kind of goes around that actually Brexit proceedings at the moment are mostly at the level of formal politics and that actually normal people don't really care about them. And so um, Aaron Bastani, erstwhile host of this show, said to me on air a few months ago, oh, you know, the, the Brexit stuff, it, it's really settled in people's minds now. I'm, I'm not convinced by that. Am I wrong? Uh, I'm not convinced that that. I mean, I find the the twos and fours of these of these Brexit mind. negotiations so they're so boring. <laughs> so I mean, and I'm like, I'm a bit of a politics nerd. Me too. Like I just don't care. Yeah, it's it's just it's so dry. Like I really I can't see how anyone can be watching what. I'm surprised newspapers aren't declining in circulation because, yeah. or especially like when you turn on the news and it's like, oh, Brexit again, and mm-hmm. it just looks like the same story again. Actually, I did go canvassing recently for against Grant Shapps, um, former housing minister, uh, it, you know, kind of Jekyll and Hyde figure. <laughs> so it was Michael Green as well. And um, <clears throat> spoke to a lot of people who, when he knocked on the door and said, hello, um, I'm canvassing, do you vote Labour? I met a lot of people who said, only voted once in my life and I voted Brexit. And um, I said, okay, would you consider voting Labour? And they all said yes if somebody came round and then, and you know, and every single one of them um, just said, oh, if we left the EU, yeah. And I was like, no, not yet. So I had a bit of a chat with them about Brexit and absolutely none of them had a clue where we were in the Brexit process or what it would look like afterwards. And if I'm a professional political journalist and I'm bored senseless of Brexit yeah. and just can't be bothered to read them, and neither can Michael, I really don't believe that the general public yeah. give us stuff. I mean, smart. what smart Remainers are saying now <laughs> is that if we want to have a softer Brexit or potentially no Brexit, what you want is a really long transition period mm. um, where sort of the... If it looks like Brexit's going to be terrible for the economy, which may well be true. I mean, I'm the reason I'm not that... I don't campaign on it particularly is because I think the... We can have an economy that works for everyone depending on sort of like policy at the top, not because of some sort of technocratic trade relationship with the EU. Mm. I think economics and politics and policy is a choice. And what by framing it in terms of EU where you've got like progress people saying the best anti-austerity policy is remain. It's like, what? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I don't know what happened in the last... (laughs) seven years in your life <laughs> but but that's not actually how politics and economics yeah. works but if, it, if it, <laughs> Did people really say that that, that was um alison mcgovern that's that's what often happens at a progress fringe is that people stand up and get a big cheer because they say the real anti-austerity politics is is, <sighs> is hard for me but if you go for a long transition period and you do the slow work of convincing people that there's a priority beyond leaving the EU mm-hmm. and that you can, your living standards can improve sort of like the amount that politicians take an interest in your concerns and your living standards that can improve while staying within the EU. And that's going to be, that's not going to be a one year project. No. That's a very, very long term mm-hmm. project. And that's why I don't see people changing yeah, their minds. I think there's also, um, I think hard remainers need to kind of take a step back and think about how many people feel the same way they do, which I do not think is very many. I think the polarised debate has kind of led to everybody believing that everybody who voted leave was desperate for a hard Brexit, whatever that mean, that means the term means. Um, and everybody who voted to remain is absolutely in love with the technocratic trading bloc, which I don't think so. I mean, mm. I voted to remain because I kind of worried about what would happen if we left. I'm not in love with the EU. I think it's extraordinarily flawed. I think that's a position most people share. And then instead you see hard remainers. I mean, there was one Mitch Ben yesterday who said, Labour need to understand that if they came out for remain, they would be 20 points ahead of the poll. And I just thought, no, they wouldn't. They'd instantly lose a third of their support. And... You know, this was exactly what the Lib Dems did at the polls. So if Labour want to poll 7%, then go and do it. But yeah. it's, it's, it spoke to me of, you know, 
the complete cosmopolitan bubble of believing yeah. that all of your friends feel exactly the same way as the entire nation without ever having, you know, leaving your bubble. And when you speak to these people, they say, no, I do. And it's like, no, giving a talk about your book in an area is quite self-selecting. You know, if you actually want to do the kind of shoe leather, knocking on doors, speaking to people you'd never normally meet, you'll find actually a much wider breadth of opinion on Brexit. But that's not what people want to do. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there was an excellent piece in your left review a few months ago mm. by Tom Hazeldine. Hazel Dean, I can't remember. I don't know how you say it. Um, <laughs> um, but another Tom, another Tom, another left-wing Tom. There are so many of them. Um, but you know that that it was talking talking about the kind of regional bases of Brexit, and it points out that you know had the three northern regions, the northeast, northwest, and Yorkshire and Humber. Um, as, and the West Midlands, been excluded from the count, Remain would have scraped home by 200,000 mm. votes. So, you know, I mean, it was still split in the, in the South, but, you know, the, the strong concentration in the former industrial heartlands was quite, um, striking. And, and that, I think the important thing for us to understand there is exactly what, what, what we're talking about is mm. that, is that the, there is actually a kind of long political process mm. involved here, which doesn't have very much to do with whether you stay in the EU or not. No. It's basically, you know, it's, it's undoing actually some of the stuff that really started to hit under Blair. Yeah. Um, you know, you think of Eddie George in 1998, who's the director of the, who's the governor of the Bank of England, told, um, lobby journalists, uh, unemployment in the Northeast is an acceptable price to pay to curb inflation in the South. Wow. Um, you know, and, and, and of course, you know, the austerity impacts as I think you alluded to mm. earlier, Dawn, is, you know, given the, the, uh, dependence in the, era of shunting kind of back office public sector jobs to the north to kind of attempt to patch up mm. and not really deal with structural problems of unemployment. I mean, this is really, some really striking figures, actually. 73% of employment growth in the northeast over the decade previous to the financial crash um, was driven by public sector and yeah. state-funded um, jobs. Uh, you know, this is the same thing that, you know, one of Blair's advisors says, said, you know, said to him, you know, they have nowhere else to go, mm. these voters, but it turns out that they do. Mm. That includes not voting. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and, you know, the decline in the Northern vote for Labour was a, a long-standing, uh, deep thing. So that question of regional, uh, you know, inequality, I think is, is, is really crucial to thinking about where politics goes next, especially for the left. And I think the striking thing, you know, for me, Recently was the you know the electrification rail electrification projects, <sighs> which cost peanuts, dropped by central government because they weren't you know in the southeast and therefore didn't really matter to them. They're never going to get votes in in, in Wales yeah. or the areas that yeah. matters. Yeah. And actually, when you look at some of the maps, especially kind of Cornwall, Wales, maybe like twenty thirty years ago, a there were more uh, functional train lines. But also, you know, if I want to get from London to Newport now, it takes me three hours, whereas apparently mm. in uh, 1980, so like seven years before I was born, it would have taken me two hours. Really? So it's actually, it's actually, it's actually, you know, you'd expect it to be quicker. It's much, much longer, you know. Mm. So, I mean, the way that rail works in Wales is utterly appalling. So it goes to the north, goes to the south, it doesn't mix the two because people didn't see a need for people to go across it. And instead, it's all about bringing uh, resources out of Wales and into the rest of England. I mean, it's, it's striking, actually, the 2016 Eurostat um, points out that Britain, you know, is the most uh, regionally uh, mm. unequal country in, in Europe. Mm. I mean, worse than Italy. Many regions are just Germany. completely yeah. undeveloping at mm. this point. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a really striking feature. So, and it's like actually the kind of economic pattern you see in transition economies, right? So the capital city does really, really well, but the rest of the country basically, um, suffers. Um, so three minutes left. Um, uh, can those things be, be prized apart? That kind of, um, economic anger or kind of resentment or the sense that, uh, you know, these things have, have done badly. And because, you know, during the Brexit vote, it was really caught up with uh, some really kind of vicious anti-migrant campaigning. Um, can, can it be prized apart? Is that, is that politically possible? Oh. I think so. I think, I think it can work slowly. I mean, if you look at uh, what happened in Wales between 2015 and 2017, Wales came back to Labour. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was due to a kind of refocusing of Labour policies, um, especially on the economic concern of Wales, um, which needs to be done again. I don't think the Welsh Assembly are the people to do it. I don't think they're to be trusted with that. I don't have any faith in Carwin Jones. But, no. um, you know, during the election, the Welsh Assembly 
and Welsh Labour desperately tried to distance themselves from Corbyn. And then when you ask people why they returned to Labour, it was all for Corbyn. So they could have actually done a lot better if they'd actually brought that in. Um, so I think you can get these regions back if you focus on a local economic settlement and also on people's kind of community well-being, because people feel their city has been forgotten, not just, you know, themselves. Yeah, I think I'll be very brief. I think you, you're not going to be able to do it by argument. So I don't mm-hmm. think you're going to be able to win back the trust of people to say, yes, let's stay in the single market. Yeah, let, yes, let's stay in the customs union because people in the same place, which is Westminster, are arguing that's in the benefit of the whole of Britain because quite rightly, people outside of the southeast don't believe that when these people say it's in the interest of Britain, it is in the interest of Britain. So I think if you're going to heal those divides, that's only going to be through long-term policy, which actually makes politics work for people outside of London. Big hill to climb. Uh, Michael Walker, Dawn Foster, thank you for joining me this week. We'll be back. Same time, same place next week. This has been Navara FM. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you by Navara Media. To find articles, videos, and more audio content like this, head to navaramedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navara Media can exist only thanks to the generosity of our subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events, as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarra Media, media for a different politics.